0: And now back to Lifeline with
1: Craig Roberts.
0: It is perhaps just a generation or so ago that we argued in apologetics debates particularly that God said, hath God said, well, today the debate is simply that God, meaning does he even exist? Nietzsche asserted a century ago that God was dead, suggesting at least at the minimum that at one time God did exist, today we debate his very existence, ever A new book helps you address a lot of these questions, perhaps questions you yourself have struggled with, certainly questions that maybe you struggle with in answering for uh, friends as you share your faith. The book is called simply Does God Exist? and 51 Other Compelling Questions About God and the Bible. Its author is a lead pastor from Life Fellowship Church outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, and the founder and host of the video ministry, the One Minute Apologist, Pastor Bobby Conway. Pastor Conway, great to have you on the program.
2: Hey, it's good to be with you,
0: buddy. Well, I guess these days, particularly with what we see going on in the world around us, whether we talk about politics or the spate of violence in particular, and a lot of it taking place in God's name or in Allah's name, and a lot of people get confused between the two. A lot of Christians really struggle to try to come up with these answers that will help satisfy uh, friends as they or coworkers as they share their faith. And in looking at your new book, I mean, it certainly isn't a 500-page tome. Uh, uh, you could almost practically memorize the entire book, and toward that degree, I just wonder if that was your intent. Well, what I did want to do is help uh, my
1: readers to gain some confidence around curious questions that they may have, or people whom they're engaging conversations with might have. And so what I did, basically, is I've got almost a thousand videos on our One Minute Apologist YouTube uh, ministry site where I interview world-leading philosophers and apologists, and then I do a lot of the questions myself, and I just sought to take, you know, 50 or so of those type of questions that I do in video format and then put them in written format. So I wrote that book to give people a tool of some of the questions that people are asking today.
0: And what I like about the book, Pastor, is it is literally a book that you could memorize. I mean, you, you could almost spend a few minutes with this every day and committed a lot of the answers uh, to memory. There, there's some give and take in here, questions to consider, uh, memory verses that uh, the tie into Uh, each of the questions along with uh, information concerning the links to the accompanied YouTube videos that you've produced that I think really can help equip Christians for, as as Paul told us, to be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within.
1: Yes, and I also think that people want information, especially in this age, that is digestible, and I think that there is a place for uh, the tome, and I'm all about that. I read those myself. I think that it's good, though, for people to have a tool, and being a pastor, I have to be a pragmatician, uh, and I think that this is something that can serve as a tool whereby people can get together in small groups or in coffee shops, uh, or they can just have it as a resource manual to look up questions either about theology or worldview or sexual issues or some of the different things that we're facing right before us right now.
0: Uh, One of the things that I like about your approach to this, uh, when I first picked up the book, I thought, well, we're going to expect to find some basic questions in there, sort of the questions of time and memoriam, does does God exist? What about the virgin birth? Uh, uh, Is Jesus equal to to God? Things of this sort that are kind of basic Christian theology. But you have not shied away from dealing with any of the contemporary questions, so to speak, of our day either. For example, I, I first read it and thought, did I read that Right? Will there be sex in heaven? Uh, you you don't shy away shy away from any of these topics, do you? Well,
1: I mean, the reality is is people have these questions, and I think in the church we need to say, "Hey, look, if we're sincerely striving to learn, it's okay to ask questions." Uh, and will there be sex in question? I mean, that's not uh, out of reason to ask that kind of question. Uh, will I still be married in question uh, in heaven? I mean, these are questions that that people thought about, In fact that Jesus was uh, posed such a question. And we learned that, you know what, we're going to be, uh, you know, like the angels in heaven, neither given in marriage. So there's going to be a marriage on earth till death do us part. So there's not going to be sex, in heaven, but I think that that's not anything for us to dread. It's hard to imagine as adults a world where there cannot be intimacy uh, between a person that we love, but we can know in heaven that the purpose of sex here on earth is for mutual pleasure and procreation, and our ultimate pleasure will be found in God, and there will be no procreative reason for us to have sex in heaven.
0: What's good, too, I think, about your approach to the book, Pastor, is that in addition to helping tackle questions that uh, we could run into day by day as we share our faith with others, there are also some very timely topics that, quite frankly, a lot of Christians struggle with themselves. They don't quite understand the answers, and we live in a society that not only promotes this sense of, of certainly uh, uh, theological pluralism, but also from the standpoint of wanting to be quote unquote tolerant, uh, and yet, We say, gee, how how do I come about giving an articulate response to some of the more controversial topics? I mean, take, for example, the matter of marijuana use. Now, here in California, we're going to head to the ballot in November, not only decide who the next president will be, U.S. Senator from California, but also decide whether or not we should follow in the footsteps of Colorado and legalize recreational use of marijuana. This is one of the topics that you've chosen to deal with. I
1: discern between medical marijuana and uh, recreational use of marijuana. I grew up in California myself, and I've been clean since October ninth, nineteen ninety four. I got clean at my first semester at Chico State, of all places. And uh, I don't know if it's still the party school it was back in the in the nineties, but it has a reputation. There. Yes, it does. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought quite the place to go and get sober. I went to an AA meeting October ninth, nineteen ninety four. And I've been clean ever since. And so I smoked a lot of dope myself in California, so I'm not throwing uh, stones at those who uh, who do. But I will say that I know back then a good hit of some green butt could get a high going. And with the THC levels where they are today, I just don't see how we can uh, maintain uh You know, temple care. The Bible talks about, you know, we're to honor our bodies, we're to take care of our temple, it kills brain cells. I think from a standpoint of medical use, I can see a real avenue for that. Suppose we were to wake up and read in the newspaper and we'd never heard about marijuana before, and we didn't have the negative connotations, and we saw scientists have found a leaf that can help those with cancer patients who are to patients to digest their food, to help them to gain weight, and to assuage them in the midst of their pain. I don't think we'd think anything of it because people use uh, many medications that are far worse right now than marijuana. So I can say I could see it being okay there, but just recreationally, I think that it's hard to make that case.
0: If you've just joined our conversation, visiting tonight with the lead pastor from Life Fellowship Church outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, the author of the new book called Does God Exist? this and 51 other compelling questions about God and the Bible. It is uh, bite-sized, which is what I like about this. Um, A lot of people get put off, questions arise, they don't know how to answer them, and they're too intimidated to uh, go out and buy a 500-page tome on the topic. And so, as a result, they just sort of maintain their sense of ignorance. But it's hard to be effective when it comes to witnessing today and not be ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within, as Paul said not be uh, prepared to engage in in thoughtful reasoned give and take and to be able to take a stand and most importantly not only be educated and equipped ourselves but then share that knowledge with others as we share our faith and that's a long way toward what this book uh is is focused on doing newly published by harvest house by the way we'll take a brief time out come back to more of the conversation deal with a few other hot topics of the day as our visit with pastor bobby conway author of does god exist continues here on lifeline and now, back
1: to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
0: Helping you answer the big questions of the day, uh, perhaps for yourself, certainly for others, as you share your faith, having a sense of uh, uh, solid discipleship where we are learned a bit, uh, we are trained, so to speak, within the basics of apologetics, is, is kind of, uh, unfortunately, passing away, meaning that fewer and fewer churches um Underscore the importance of this. And yet, I think really to be an effective witness in sharing our faith and also have a good sense of grounding in our own relationship with Christ, it's important that we have some of these fundamental answers, a fundamental understanding of our faith. And uh, the new book, Does God Exist? and 51 other compelling questions about God and the Bible goes a long way toward, in a very direct fashion, answer many of those questions. Questions. Its author is our guest today, Bobby Conway. He is also the lead pastor of Life Fellowship Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. He's also authored other books and uh, is the founder and host, by the way, of the rapidly growing video ministry, The One Minute Apologist, which is, I guess, Bobby, if you just do a, um, a search in YouTube, all of the link will come up.
1: Absolutely, yeah, just type in one minute apologist. We have a channel in YouTube or they can go to the one minute apologist dot com and they can learn more about the videos there
0: and hey, this is really i mean I, I think of not just. Uh, new believers, but a good refresher, of course, for some of us that have been in faith for a lot of years, as well as an opportunity to get studied with a biblical perspective on some of the so-called hot topics of the day, which I know a lot of believers struggle with. I mean, for example, this issue of uh, transvestitism or sex change uh, has been a lot in the news lately, particularly with uh, uh, Bruce Jenner capturing a lot of headlines, and I know that when the topic comes up, other than uh, sharing a sense of uh, disbelief or uh, uh, frustration with the topic, the, many many Christians, I think, are just frustrated. They don't know how to answer. They don't know how to respond when this debate or this topic is approached.
1: It's too bad that uh, the church has a reputation uh, for being bombastic at times. By and large, uh, the Christians that I come in contact are wonderful people, uh, humble people, but a lot of times they're not ready to engage in conversation uh, with people. Those who would say apologetics uh, isn't important uh, obviously uh, haven't been out sharing uh, with non believers or engaging them with questions about their faith because those questions will come up. And in, in particular, this one on sex change, uh, this is a huge issue in our culture right now. And I do think that we should be looking for ways to exhibit compassion i mean i can't imagine what it would be like to feel trapped uh with another gender inside of my body uh at the same token i think we can show a compassion you know i can't uh, you know imagine what that would be like i'm not trying to throw stones at you here i'm just trying to be faithful to the way that i believe that god created us and i believe that. Uh, the chromosomal structure cannot be changed through a uh, sex change. Uh, our chromosomal structure reveals whether we're male or female. Now, there is an intersex condition that some would have, where maybe they might have some you know, partial male and partial female body parts, and I can understand the situation like that where they might seek counsel and get some wisdom on how to be unified so they don't... So that individual doesn't feel like they're half male, half female. That makes sense. But I do think biblically we should realize that uh, sex is not something that we can just uh, play with. It's des- We're designed by God with a certain gender.
0: The other thing that I think believers should appreciate from a book like this is not only equipping them in terms of a a better, more articulate, uh, apologetic approach to many of the hot topics of the day from a biblical perspective, but also some of the topics that kind of swirl within the church that oftentimes uh, we need to gain a deeper, more foundational understanding on. Uh, It is probably unlikely for the most part that the average non-believer is going to want to engage you in questions about the Trinity, but we know that uh, modalism or uh, Trinitarianism within the Church, are there are corners where this is hotly contested and debated, and from time to time, I think at least from a good biblical foundation, from a discipleship standpoint, it's important that believers understand what the Bible actually has to say on topics that are very relevant to the Christians' faith, particularly in issues such as the Trinity.
1: Sure, that's a good point, Craig, where we see that God is one in essence and three in person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. I think that there's a lot of confusion today, and I think that in my last book I wrote called Doubting Toward Faith, I wrestled with some of my own doubts and wrote about some of my own struggle with it and shared how, you know, we're living in a melting pot culture of belief. We're like a nation without a mission statement. We're not what we once were. We're not sure what we're becoming. But in between, in this tweener space, it's great. And there's lots of questions. And we're experiencing what Jennifer Heck talked about, this idea of cosmopolitan doubts, where my belief bumping up against somebody else's belief and we're wondering how can I know what I believe is really true and I think that we need to to help people to deal with these questions and with their doubts, and a lot of people are intimidated to share their doubts because they're going to feel like they're an immature believer if they do, and I want to say as a pastor and as an apologist that in the absentee of certainty, there's always going to be room for doubt. The question is, which worldview closes the doubt gap the best? And me, as a Christian pastor, I can struggle with doubts, but I believe when I look at the case for the resurrection of Jesus, and when I think about Our worldview compared to other worldview options, I believe Christianity is uh, the greatest worldview standing and offers the greatest amount of evidence for us.
0: Do we also have to uh, concede that there are some topics for which there's just not real clear direction within Scripture uh, that sort of uh, now we see uh, through a glass darkly uh, approach that, you know, there are certain mysteries, so to speak, that we do not fully comprehend and give believers a sense of relief that that's okay?
1: I think so. I think it makes us... Uh, look, if somebody gets discipled, they're a brand-new Christian, and then they go, okay, I've been discipled, I've had my five hours of training, uh, they're often ultra-dogmatic. They go out, and they feel like they've they've read their Left Behind series, and they know how God's going to wrap the world up. And, <laughs> look, the reality is is if we're going to go in and out of some of these doctrinal positions on age of the earth or the timing of jesus return or which translation to use or whether or not one of the calvinist or arminian and i think we need to give people some real freedom to think because sometimes we can give people such a tight doctrinal list that then if they're just thinking because they read another book not trying to disobey god just wrestling with the argument. They can feel like they're doing something wrong, and the reality is, is they're just thinking. And I think that's when we get back to, we need to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, love our neighbors, ourselves. As Christians, our faith is in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We're keeping our faith there, and then we live... It a lot of flexibility, and we give each other a lot of grace because we're splintering the church to death in the name of our pet particularities, and I think we need to loosen up a little bit.
0: And I think that's a key point that you make because there's also this perspective that says, listen, um, there are some doctrines, so to speak, that are going to constantly be open for debate. I mean, you know, upon baptism, should we sprinkle or should we dunk? I don't know. I mean, I, I think there's evidence to show, certainly from Christ's experience with it, that uh, the dunking is the way to go. That said, it certainly doesn't classify as a damnable doctrine, meaning that if you don't embrace it or believe it certain ways, uh, that, that you're going to be outside the confines of of of, of so-called normative or or um, a historical Christianity. But there's also this notion that we can sometimes get so caught up in the minutia of some of these completely unwinnable debates that we, we end up seeing our relationship with very Christ himself suffer, don't we? I just would love to
1: see the church at large really grasp what you're saying right there. Because if we could just get the beauty and the joy of learning. Yes, there's a corpus of theology that we're to believe, but the reality is, is we've got over 40,000 denominations, Uh, you know, uh, you can pit many of these great theologians that are our heroes, and they contradict each other on some of these viewpoints as well. That doesn't mean that undercuts our belief ultimately in the authority of Scripture. What it means is people are finite. And yes, there's one interpretation from God's perspective, but as humans, I believe, myself included, none of us walk around as perfect interpreters of Scripture. So that should create some humility in us that, you know what, we're going to do our best to show ourselves as workmen who are approved of studying the Word of God but we're going to be humble with the way that we handle that with others as well.
0: And in doing so, of course, being prepared to give an answer uh, to not only deepen your own relationship with Christ and understanding of your own faith but then to be more effective communicator at discipling believers that you've won to Christ and certainly hope that's part of uh, your your life experience and then to, to be prepared to share your faith with others. This book goes a long way in a very Very easy fashion. It answers the question Does God exist? That and 51 other compelling questions about God, the Bible, and quite frankly, life in general, wrestling with a lot of the questions, contemporary ones that we struggle with to. This very day, Bobby Conway is the author of the new book, lead pastor of Life Fellowship Church, located just outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary. Great job on the book, newly published, by the way, by our friends at Harvest House and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area, as well as through some of the usual suspects, Amazon.com. You can also get it through Pastor Conway's website, Bobby Conway. Spell it just the way it sounds, bobbyconwayonline.com. That's bobbyconwayonline.com. And, you know, if you're looking for some quick, easy to nibble on and digest uh, and memorize content, not only the book, but also uh, we mentioned about his YouTube channel uh, that provides, what did you say, Bobby, over a thousand videos?
1: Well, we're working close to a thousand. We've got about 900 right now, so almost a thousand different videos.
0: And these are all called the One Minute Apologist that deals with just short bite-sized chunks of information on a whole variety of topics that, that very much mimic uh, what the book does. So you can check that out on YouTube by simply uh, doing a, a Google search. Go to YouTube and look for the One Minute Apologist. Again, the book, Does God Exist? And 51 other compelling questions about God and the Bible, newly published by Harvest House. Our thanks to Pastor Bobby Conway for being with us tonight here on this edition of Lifeline. Gary Bechner joins us now, executive director of the Association of American Educators. And I understand a new survey out, uh, cooperation between Gallup and Phi Delta Kappa, looking at the state and perception of public school education and the public teachers in America. Give us some of the, the highlights, if you would, Gary. Did, did we learn a lot about changing attitudes or changing perceptions based on the, uh, the experiences in places like Wisconsin and Ohio?
2: Oh, we have. And by the way, Craig, thank you very much for allowing us to be on the air with you. We appreciate it. Even though we're the fastest growing national organization of our kind, we're probably still the best kept secret, too. So this is a thrill to be on the air with you. Uh, Yeah, the Phi Delta Kappa Gallup survey, it it just came out this week, uh, indicates what we as an organization have known for quite a while uh, from our own surveys, that Americans um, are getting very frustrated with and unfortunately, they, they're getting frustrated with teachers, but that is misdirected, that anger, because the, the Gallup survey actually kind of underscored what we know, and that Americans really continue to support their teachers, but not their teacher unions. And that disconnect is really giving teachers a black eye. Uh, the survey showed that 71% of respondents said that they have trust and confidence in American teachers still. However, when asked about the teacher unions, only 47%, actually 47% said they believe the unions have hurt education compared to only 26% believing that unions have helped education. So we've got to work hard to separate uh, this, anon- this anonymous uh, connection of unions and public education uh, and get back to just uh, teachers and helping teachers to do what we do best.
0: Do you think there's a level at which the, the black eye that has come. And again, I agree with you. I think a lot of the anger, the frustration has been misdirected. But do you think there's a level, Gary, that a degree to which the black eye that has been given to education by the unions is deservedly?
2: Sure, absolutely. When, when you just follow the, the takeover of public education by the unions uh, since 19, the mid-1960s on, I mean, I, I just want to go back for a second. Even even then, when it started to happen, when the unions started taking over public education, uh, even leaders of the NEA thought that was a bad idea. I mean, in a, in a Nostradamus uh, moment in 1968, the former NEA Executive Secretary, uh, Dr. Bill Carr, William Carr, warned the convention members at the NEA convention that this would someday lead to, 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 to destroy the confidence of the public in, in education.
0: Well, I got to tell you, because, and, I, and I asked that question, uh, Gary, not, not to necessarily throw uh, stones, but uh, years ago, I obtained a copy of a publication that was produced by the NEA and the California Teachers Association entitled Guidelines for Academic Freedom in the Public Schools. And when I read what the union thinks, about conservatives and uh, those that are concerned about getting their children a, a quality-based education that still protects the, the, the mores of the family uh, and who the union considers to be their enemy. I was appalled, and I thought, you know, you're, you're painting the majority of the parents that send their kids to your schools as the enemy here, uh, and they're not the enemy. If anything, I, I think the perception by a lot of parents who really understand the agendizing of education that's been perpetrated by the unions, as, as the unions being the real enemy of both teachers and students in education.
2: Absolutely. There, there is so much evidence just following. There's a wonderful book written by Dr., um, Dennis Cuddy, C U D D Y, of the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. Some some years back, he was working in the uh, Reagan administration, I believe. Could have been, could have been a George Bush senior, but I think it was Reagan. And he did, he just uh, was flabbergasted when he started uh, coming up against some of the education reform initiatives that the Department of Education was trying to put out, and then seeing the pushback from the from the NEA in particular. The AFT was there as well, pushing back. But he started investigating the history of why they would be so against reforms that would be in the best interest of teachers and especially kids and he discovered that they have an agenda that has nothing to do with educating our children and has very little to do with actually protecting and helping our teachers it's all about changing transforming this country from a republic into a socialist nation and if you and you you think we overspeak this but we can give you the booklets and we can show you from our own research actual document that we produce called powerful failure how the national education association fails to use its influence for education to show you that their agenda has nothing to do with education and
0: very little to do with helping teachers. Oh, I tell you what, uh, Gary, you're preaching to the choir here. I don't think you overspeak it. If anything, I might suggest maybe you underspeak it. <laughs> uh, you know, the, the agenda that is promoted by the unions, that actually is sole and separate from the agenda supported by most, you know, rank and file teachers, are, are miles apart. You know, it's interesting because I have long believed that, that education is a partnership, that it ought to be a, a dual responsibility between the parents. And the teachers. I don't think that parents ought to just dump their kids on uh, public educators and expect them to come back, you know, uh, after a six or seven hour study day. Uh, Brilliant. Uh, There's no accountability. There's no effort put in, oftentimes, by parents today, and I think that's a dirty shame. And I think the poor performance numbers that we're seeing in many of our schools across the country, the, the responsibility of which needs to be borne out by both the teachers and the parents. That said, I have often wondered why so much pushback by the unions, hello CTA, are you listening, why so much pushback by the unions to create any kind of system of accountability? i got to tell you, one of the most dangerous things I think to public education or the success thereof today is this whole idea of tenure and the idea that just by the amount of time in service, you somehow magically reach the location or, or, or the position in your your scholastic career as an educator where you're now exempt from any level of accountability that you no longer ought to fear, a lack of performance. Uh, you know, that doesn't happen in the private sector. If I don't perform at my job, the boss will come in one day and say, you got to straighten up and fly right, or guess what? There's 10 other talk show hosts sitting behind you that would be happy to have your job. Why do the unions t- think that teachers ought to be exempt from that level of accountability?
2: Well, Craig, uh, first of all, you'll be happy to know that it's the union's agenda. It's not necessarily a teacher's agenda. Our own surveys have indicated that our membership, which you have to understand our members would be people that are looking for an alternative a professional alternative to labor unions, so they would have a different point of view. But these are top teachers. These are national teachers of the year. These are good people. And they would agree that our, our last survey showed that 73 percent, of uh, our members thought that the Colorado policy, the new policy for teachers in that state, where teachers can lose tenure if they're deemed ineffective for two consecutive years, our guys by a vast majority thought that's a good idea. I mean, there's there should be no job for life, especially if it has nothing to do, especially if you're a poor performer. I mean, it's just. So you'll be happy to know that many, many, many teachers agree with that.
0: Well, I know that some that have told me and confided in me privately have said, you know, there's there's nothing worse for our profession than those who are tenured, who have given up, who maybe should never have been in the profession in the first place, and as a result of their protected status by the unions, ultimately drag everybody down. You know, that notion of one bad apple ruins the whole bunch. Mm
2: -hmm. Well, remember, the union's job is to protect Jobs. That's their job, and their their goal uh, is to make sure that uh, legislatively across the country, as in California, this is a constant battle in states across the country. Twenty-seven states in this nation, the unions like in California, are allowed to take dues from teachers' paychecks, whether the teachers want to have be represented by that union or not
0: see i'm i'm comfortable with the role of unions in collective bargaining and protecting you know teachers rights and teachers benefits and and you know uh, work labor uh, labor hours and things of that sort i'm fine for all of that uh... my problem uh, gary is when the so-called interests of the union or interests of the teachers are now running contrarian to what is in the best interest of the parents and their students, because in the end, teachers have to realize these kids don't belong to you. And the minute you think that you've got so-called academic freedom to begin teaching a standard or a moral that runs contrary to what is taught in my household, we got a big problem.
2: That's right. Well, change is only going to come when enough of America's teachers wake up to the fact that being inextricably linked to labor unions will never allow them to get the kind of respect and reward they seek. And, and Put it another way, here's the bottom line. Teachers will never get the pay they deserve if they continue to be linked with organized labor. All
0: right, I want you to stop on that for a moment, Gary, because I have got the 64,000, oh, it's more than that. It's got so many zeros behind it. The question is unbelievable. I have a question for you that I have yet to have a professional educator ever be able to answer for me, maybe it's going to be a first here on Lifeline. We're talking with Gary Becker, Executive Director of the Association of American Educators bit of a different tone as you perhaps detect from what has been the typical dialogue with representatives of the cta or the nea for some inexplicable reason who will no longer come on this program don't know why we'll (laughs) we'll see if gary's still on the line when we come back after the nah he's brave i'll be good to you gary but i got a question i think you'll find fascinating let's come back with more of our conversation right around the corner And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Gary Beckner with us, Executive Director of the Association of American Educators. Gary, did I lose you? No, I'm here. You're still there. You're a brave man, Gary. All right. Here, here. Multiple choice. Here is the question that uh, multiple presidents of the California Teachers Association on this program have refused or have been unable to answer, um, and we even had a spokesperson from the NEA, the national level, uh, not not answer either. All we ever hear when we talk about budget cuts and trying to manage the budget, in a state like California, for example, fifty cents out of every dollar goes to education. OK, so if we have a one hundred and ten billion dollar budget this year, fifty five billion dollars is going singularly to education. We think about everything the state of California does and 50 cents out of every dollar goes to education. And then our kids cross the, uh, the stage there when they receive their diploma and can't even read the diploma. We know something's wrong. Here's my question for you. California, on average, and, and, and we're going to be generous, kind of work with me here for a moment with the numbers, Gary. California, on average, is spending about $10,000 per student. Can we agree to that? Yeah. And on average, most classrooms have about about 30 students. Would you agree? Little less than Little that. Little less than that, but, but, but ballparkish. Yeah. All right. So if it's 10000 per students and a- about 30, st- let's let tell you what, we'll go with a smaller number. We'll say 25 students. So $10,000 per student and 25 students per classroom, that means twenty two hundred and fifty thousand dollars by my math. Am I right? Yeah. Okay. $250,000. Would I be overly generous, Gary, if I said that? Fifty thousand dollars is going to the educator salary. I. Uh, that's low for California. That's low for California. All right. So what are they making? Sixty thousand. Sixty four average. Sixty four thousand. Yep. Average. Uh, all right. Sixty four thousand. So let, let, let's let's just take it over the top. We're we're going to say uh, approximately. Uh, after we've paid the teacher who's earning an average of about $64,000, we'll do some round numbers here, uh, $185,000 of the 250000 per classroom that we began with is left over. Can you explain to me where is that money going?
2: It, 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 so this is a true-false question, or this is, you actually want to know where
0: the money I want to know where the money is going, because I have yet, even Jack O'Donnell, our former uh, superintendent of public instruction, when I challenged him on this thing, he said, you, we're constantly asking for more money. Our teachers are typically underpaid for what they have to put up with, the hours that they put in, and the vast responsibility that they have. Look, I think most of you want to be paid $100,000 a year, no questions asked. Right. But then, as we're constantly hearing the unions beg for more money, more money, more money, more money, I've got to wonder where is all of this money going? If it's not going to the teachers, and in many areas of the state, we own the buildings outright, how are we managing to spend $185,000 per classroom that's not going to the teachers?
2: Okay, well, I've got an answer for you, but it was a long question, so you have to give me a, a minute to develop it. All yours. Okay. First of all, let me tell you that as an educator organization, uh, we would agree. uh, We obviously agree that an educated public is the most important factor in maintaining our republic. Uh, So we would agree that we would agree to pour more money into the system if, and here's the big caveat, if it could be guaranteed that that money would actually reach the classrooms for teachers' salaries and student materials and, and conditions, et cetera, and not be gobbled up, by the bureaucratic blob controlling our public education system today. Now, let me give you an example by way of New Jersey. A new film—what's happening? Which underscore what's happening in California and where that money goes. In New Jersey, there is a new uh, documentary that just came out on the heels of another great documentary called *Waiting for Superman*. Uh, and this one's called *The Cartel*, and it shows. What's happening in New Jersey, which is absolutely a corollary corollary with what's happening in California and in other large uh, states uh, where the unions are holding sway, and that is it showed that there are over 400 school administrators in Newark, one city, that made at least $100,000 a year. 400 administrators in Newark that made at least $100,000 a year. Not one teacher made $100,000 a year. So this whole system is so upside down that the money goes into a black hole, but it's kind of an inverted pyramid, and it stays at the top. By the way, these union leaders that never will come on, they won't talk about this either because these are some of the highest paid guys in the state, and that's off the backs of teachers' dues which comes out of taxpayer money as well as you know. So the money goes down a black hole and it's called the bureaucratic blob. We have more administrators in jobs doing nothing. We don't even make some of these administrators even step foot in the classroom and teach anymore. That are, it's just like our United States government. We have, what was it, by the year 2025, there are gonna be more people in the Department of Agriculture than there are gonna be farmers. Well, that's what's happening to our public education system today.
0: Let me interrupt you, Gary, and say what a breath of fresh air. You have done, you've gone where no man has dared to go before. You have finally, I knew the answer, by the way. I was waiting for an educator. To finally have the guts to articulate the answer. California, and th- this is not real recent information, but some of the research that we have done, when you look at the layers of bureaucracy, as we have, you know, the local board of, of education, and then we got the state board of education, and then we got the feds on top of that, and everybody having something to say, on average, we're looking at three people. Collecting a salary in the state of California attached to education for every one actual educator in the classroom. Yeah. I tell you what, Gary, that's not wrong. That's criminal. It is criminal. And the fact that you've got administrators that are these, these glorified paper pushers... That add nothing, not one iota of quality to a child's education, sorry for those of you that do it and are listening right now, you can send me the hate email later, not one, adding one iota of a caliber of education in the classroom to any of our kids, you know what, I tell you, I could free up money to increase teacher salaries overnight. We would deal with the lack of school materials and books and and overcrowded classrooms overnight. I would go through and lock, stock and barrel, number one, we don't need three layers of administrators telling the teachers what to do. Look, let a local school board make the decisions, the state level, the feds, goodbye, you're out of business, gone. And this whole idea of three administrators for every one classroom teacher, flip that around if you flip it around I'm okay with that I wish that your colleagues would have the guts to go publicly with this crime that is being perpetrated on taxpayers and parents and students and pull back the coverage you just did now here on radio and, 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 and let everybody know that what is fundamentally wrong with education today is the stranglehold the unions have on the teachers and the stranglehold that the bureaucracy has on education.
2: I couldn't have said it better, and apparently it's a good answer. So do I get
0: $64,000? You know what? If, if you work with us to get edu- more people educated in this arena, Gary, absolutely, and then some. Hey, we're out of time. I want to have you back on, Gary. I'm sorry we're out of time here. We're going to get you schedule on earlier next time on the program. Um, I like this organization. And finally, somebody that knows how to tell the truth. American Association of Educators, a-a-e-teachers.org. If you're a teacher, find out more about them.